Between the Chapters, a weekly podcast discussion focusing on a chapter of the book, 25 Years of EdTech, written by Martin Weller. Here's your host, Laura Pasquini. This episode of the book club is a little bit longer. It's Laura here letting you know it's a two-parter, one with Judith and Catherine and the second half with Marin and Virginia. We had to record a different time because time zones are hard and so was getting people together just before and after the holiday break. Um, so I really hope you enjoy this perspective and learn from different parts of the world and countries. So we get to hear a little bit about Uruguay, Brazil, uh, Latin America, Costa Rica, and then also around Eastern Africa. Um, I'm really excited for this conversation and and bringing it to other parts of the global world. So enjoy. Welcome to Chapter 11, 2004, Open Educational Resources, or lovingly called OER. I'm still Laura. I'm here with Judith Pete and Catherine Cronin. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining me to have a little bit of a chat of everything OER, it sounds like. Hi, Laura. Delighted to be here. Um, I feel like I am with two lovely friends for a chat today, which I am, because Laura, I've known you for several years online, and I know you have close family connections here in Ireland, even around Galway. And the last time I saw Judith was for the OER conference in April 2019. And um, Judith and I met through the global OER graduate network, the GoGN network, which I expect we'll talk a bit more about. Um, and so, yeah, the last time I saw you, Judith, you were in my house here in, in Galway. So yeah, Judith's work really in OER definitely inspires me. Um, so maybe, Judith, you might want to start just talking about your work. Thank you very much, Laura. And thank you, Catherine, for that wonderful introduction. Uh, ideally, uh, my work in OER, and I'm speaking to you right away from Nairobi, Kenya. Uh, my work and my involvement in OER has been very fascinating and is quite interesting to discuss, something I really have passion to share about. Because uh, all the way from when I started to learn more about OER in 2008, I didn't know it would lead me to where I am today. So it has been such a, quite a growth and such a, a development that I find a lot of transformation in my heart, in what I do, and ideally transforming the society through OER. Now, currently, uh, I remember way back this year when I've really gotten involved so much after my graduation. Uh, when the pandemic came, hit Kenya, the coronavirus, all the learning institutions, the schools, the, the colleges and universities were shut down. Something had to be done because education and learning had to continue. So I remember with uh, the Ministry of Education contacting and sending out calls for professors and lecturers who could support in training the high school teachers and the university college uh, on information technology and digital proficiency so that we could continue uh, teaching and learning online. Well, people shifted very quickly to the remote teaching and learning, but then the technology and technological know-how and the digital proficiency was quite an issue then. So I came in with all that I've learned uh, through the years on my PhD on OER and all the conferences that we've been attending learning from friends globally on how they do stuff and reading a lot on OER. This gave me that opportunity to share with my, uh, my, my uh, citizen mates on how to go about digital proficiency and information literacy. And even to date, we are doing online. And ideally, truth be told, we are not going to be the same because the new norm is now going to be both online and face-to-face. -face. So we are moving straight away to the blended mode of learning in our institution. I've also been in consultancy and there is a drive over here 
uh, on a particular organization called the Pedagogue, the 21st Century Education. So I've been involved, I've been consulted on how to assist people to understand how teaching and learning should be done in the 21st century. In other words, how can we integrate OER and ICT in teaching and learning, both at primary, which is foundational modes of learning, all the way to the higher education institution? So we have been having series of the uh, trainings, workshops, and symposiums to open up people's eyes on how things must be done, how learning and teaching needs to be done in the 21st century. You cannot talk about education and learning and you sideline technology. Technology or digital world has brought to us a lot of potential. Oh yeah, a lot of potential as well that we can tap into, especially in the global south. And to be specific in my country, Kenya, we can tap on this to improve the quality of education, quality of teaching and learning. And this goes a long way in terms of enhancing the economic status of my country. So I'm really passionate on this. Then I am also a very active member of uh, e-learning Africa. I remember twice I've done presentation. Uh, in 2018, I presented uh, a situation of the GoGN uh, uh, on how to recruit more members to join uh, in Kigali, Rwanda. And then on 2015, I was presenting the, my findings uh, in, in the Kampala in an e-learning Africa conference. So these also are very good platforms of sharing on how OER can be used. And such movements are very good because you realize that now that uh, the pandemic is still there, everything has gone online and anybody can log in and at least follow up on how this can be beneficial in terms of improving our uh, teaching and learning methodology. Yeah, I was going to say, Joe, this is, uh, you've just given a wealth of knowledge. So I'm going to break things, a couple of things down for our listeners. Um, e-learning Africa is a great global network of working professionals and I, you support information and, cu- and communication technologies, education and training, uh, technology specialists get involved and those that make and create knowledge and learning. So I just want to put that out there. Great network. I'll link it to uh, this episode. Um, I also think GoGN is a really been a cool place to see people gather. So maybe um, Catherine or Judith, either one of you, if you could share a little bit about what uh, the that Go Network is about. Um, and the other acronym I'd want our listeners not to get last on because we love alphabet soup in higher ed and academia. Um, OEP is Open Educational Practices. So anyway, tune in. I don't want you to get lost. So I'm going to stop us every now and then and just give some definitions because I get lost too. So um, Catherine, can you share a little bit about the GoGN and how you got involved? Because I'm loosely on the periphery lurking on this amazing network, but I'd love to know how people can... Um, know more about and get involved as well. Sure. Um, So yeah, GoGN stands for the Global OER uh, Graduate Network. And it is a network of individuals who are doing research in the, you know, the general area of open education. And it is truly global. Uh, It's, you know, one of one of its values from the very beginning was about the power of, you know, exchanging and sharing practice globally around open education. So I, uh, you know, I've been working in the area in in higher education and latterly in open education for some time. And I started my PhD in 2013. And I was peripherally aware of GoGN, but I joined it actively shortly after I started my PhD. And, you know, in addition to being um, 
you know, as I said, a really powerful network where people share practice, research methodologies, you know, what works, what doesn't work, um, huge amount of personal support as you go through that journey of doing a PhD. It's just also been a source of some amazing friendships. And, you know, each year the GoGN network usually hosts um, a workshop, funds and hosts um, a workshop for um people in the GoGN network and every year I've participated in it and observed it. There are just these, as I said, these, you know, very amazing friendships of people who've been perhaps getting to know and supporting one another online and then get to actually work um, and help each other in person. So, you know, Judith is certainly one of those people that, you know, our friendship, that's where it originated. Um, so the, I would say I'm, I am, haven't been as directly involved in the network um, in the past year, but their, their activities have, have ramped up considerably with the, um, the publication of the research methods handbook. So, you know, I don't know if Judith, you want to say a little bit more about that, but the, you know, the it's growing, it's expanding. And, you know, whenever I meet anyone who's doing research in open education, I, I encourage them um, to become part of GoGN. Uh, GoGN network, I was there from the time it was being conceived. And because uh, the, the the brain behind this was Professor Fred Mulder was my PhD supervisor, so I'm a pioneer of the same network. And ideally, to uh, to speak the truth and to tell you something about uh, from my heart is that without this network, people like me wouldn't have graduated with PhD. The support that I got from this specific network called GoGN is amazing, awesome, and uh, you know the, the 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 genuineness of responses and support that you get. It's not something that you really compare with any other that I've been involved in. So the main aim, the main aim of the network is uh, to raise the profile of open education researchers and supporting the PhD candidates in the field and engaging with its alumni and more importantly, uh, developing openness as a process of research. This is very key. And especially now that we are even uh, faced with a challenge of the pandemic. So openness is key. And openness here for me would be like having free access to quality uh, teaching and learning uh, information that can help in transforming people's way of life. I like it when, uh, you know, Martin Weller puts it here that it's not just uh, having it open, but also having it open to allow others to use that and reuse them to transform their local their local status. So this is very important, very key. Now, with the methodology, uh, research methodology that we came up with, all the GoGN graduates and I mean, candidates, PhD candidates came up with their various uh, methods they used to achieve their PhD researches. So we brought all this together and with the support of our own philosopher, <laughs> we put them all together and then we have a wonderful book that is guiding people globally. I have shared it here severally. And now it's being, my colleagues are not going online to share what they have written, but they use, they borrow from those methodologies that we all put together in one single book to guide them on how to undertake their research. My, my master's students here use it, the PhD students here also use it, and I guess in our networks, because these all are shared openly, others are also benefiting from that single book. Those are, uh, I mean, the platforms in which we get engaged in the OER practices. 
I love that um, a lot of what this network represents is community and coming together. And this started um, just probably as I was finishing up my PhD, but I learned in talking to Judith before, I can be a friend of the Gojian. You can be affiliated in different ways. Um, and I just love that some of it is around like empathy, accountability, and trust. Um, the network and openness and defining openness. Uh, I was wondering what it really means to both of you, because OER has this term, you know, like UNESCO has this term, right? Teaching, learning, research materials, any medium otherwise um, in the public domain, but it's not just about like an open license and no cost and reuse. It's also really about these deeper things of being vulnerable, putting your work out there, um, having trust in the network and the people and the idea of sharing. It really is at the center of it for me, but I don't know what openness really means to you and why you've really both kind of circled around. This is kind of one of your strongest values, it sounds like, in your work. Uh, yes, most definitely. I I mean, for me personally, my background is, you know, initially was in engineering and IT and then also in women's studies and community work. So, um so I suppose my work for many years has been a mashup, or maybe I should say a remix of, of those two kind of different strands. And open education embodies both of those because, you know, obviously we're talking about, um, you know, digital education, um, but we're also talking about critical and feminist pedagogies and overall a critical approach. And, you know, this is something that I think Martin refers to in the chapter, and that is the kind of the lifetime of how we understand OER and open since, you know, 2004 is the year that he picks um, to, to write about this in the book. But, you know, initially there was a real focus on, you know, the open license itself, permitting reuse and remix, um, then an understanding perhaps of the importance of embedding um, open in policy and strategy so that it doesn't become just, you know, an outer strand of the work of, of education, that it becomes embedded in, in the values um, of what we do. Um, the importance of support and professional development um, in order to embrace openness. Um, initially, the first definition I, I love of, of OER was really about teachers creating educational materials. And very soon afterwards, um, you know, it broadened out. So it could be, you know, anyone, including students, um, creating open. And laterally, I suppose, within the open movement, OER and OEP, we're addressing bigger questions. And those are things like, um, you know, who creates um, knowledge, who shares knowledge, whose knowledge. Um, so, you know, getting back to Gojian, well, you can read about the theory of, you know, epistemic inequality and alienation that happens when we, when we kind of export, you know, narrow, uh, you know, what can be called global north centric conceptions of open. Um, but the Gojian network actually embodies those things. So we have scholars from from all parts of the globe working together, sharing work, supporting one another, learning together, teaching one another. So living those values is a really important part of then, you know, practicing open scholarship and open education in all the different places that we do that. Um, so, you know, so yes, the global, you know, OER network, the GoGN network is a network, but I think for those of us who are a part of it and, and work within it, we realize that it's much more integral you know, to our conceptions of openness, the work that we do and the values that we hold. Yes, in addition, for me, openness would mean uh, free access to 
quality information that can be reused to solve local problems. Now, I based this uh, understanding from the African perspective of free sharing. Now, in the in the golden days when our great grandparents used to share information for free under a tree, that sharing of information was not quantified. No one was used to pay for it. It was for free. And therefore, each and every participant had to come out with an idea that they would be expected to go and implement. I bring this now to the aspect of the content, the content of information that we teach and that we put out there for teaching and learning. I get back to what uh, Catherine mentioned with regards to uh, what do you share or, or from whom and how is it shared. Now, it is still a challenge within uh, uh, our continent for people to freely share the right content and let it out there. I normally make noise and I say that we are more of consumers than you know producers. We consume too much from outside, from others, but we are not willing, we've not reached that particular point uh, which we also want to share ours, and we let others freely to reuse them. And so I think the con uh, the concept of open and openness and the values that surrounds it comes with free access, quality, ethics, um, and those, those two that is going to be transformational. If I use this information, can I move from point A to point C? For me, that makes uh, the sharing and the openness more, you know, more uh, uh, valuable and valid in the African context. How can we get back to our great grandparents who are sharing information for free under a tree and no one quantified such kind of information? Now, how can I, as a professor in a university, share the, my content for free that people can be able to reuse them and even alter them to solve their own situations wherever they are across the globe? So that for me is the concept of openness. I really like Judith, um, how you frame that idea of commodification and consumer versus producer, because I think we forget that um, our learners, our staff, our faculty, and other people are part of the bigger system in higher ed, at least can be doing more creation than consumption. And it's funny to hear you both talk about uh, your background in ways in um, because I I think about like I'm a history major and I studied um, I, I studied revolutions should be shocking to no one that I'm doing so I want to know how the groundswell of people come together and studying the Haitian Revolution um, from the colonized French Revolution and also comparing Cuban women within the Cuban Revolution um, how do people get voices and rise up and um, find their space and both of you just reminded me about that kind of of why we are grounded in these uh, roles and openness is because we are looking for people to have a voice, to have equity, to have um, access. I love that you put it that way, Judith. And Catherine, I like that you said, like you're thinking about uh, more of a, a body of work that people are coming together. Um, I think that's just brilliant. And Judith, I, please tell me about the GoGN motto because I was just looking at that. I love the logo there. Thank you. The logo is uh, Tuko Pamoja. Tuku Pamoja is a Swahili word that means together as one. We're working as a team, pulling together. And you know, sometimes during the PhD writing and development and research processes within the PhD study can be very lonely, can be very annoying, can be very depressing. But then where do you fall back to when you are in such kind of a, of a situation? Go to your network. So Tuku Pamoja is a motto that is ideally uh, 
framing what we are, framing what the network is meant to be, of bringing people together, sharing our challenges and our successes together, and at the same time, pulling up those who feel that they're weak at a, at a particular point, building up on my methodology where I feel doesn't fit and I'm not getting the output that I expected. And at the same time, sharing all our successes. So it is really that which brings us together. Unity is strength, remember. So when we talk about Tuko Pamoja, it's a Swahili one, together as one. What are we doing together? We are practicing openness. We are building a network. We are in this web together. We are in it together. No one is left alone and no one will be left behind. So we all move as a team. We mentor one another as students. With our supervisors, they therefore just come to perfect what we have already done as a team or a group of uh, uh, candidates who are striving towards same goal and vision. And that is really a strong mission when it comes to PhD study. And this is the way PhD should be undertaken. Alone, you may not enjoy it. As a team, together, you enjoy the entire process. You don't have to sell me on team. That's amazing. I think it's so true, Catherine. You probably felt the same thing as you're going through your academic studies and PhD studies. Absolutely. And I just, I'm just listening to Judith there and I'm, I'm kind of holding two things in my mind. One is, you know, many of us have said over the course of the last eight months, you know, since, uh, you know, the move to remote online learning um, due to COVID-19 that, you know, a lot of the world is just discovering, you know, online education for the first time. And, you know, for people who've been engaged in this for many, many years, it can be very frustrating. And I think the same could be said about um, open education. You know, many people are just discovering, hey, if I if I actually share this, you know, other people find it. Isn't it amazing? Um, so, yes, you could be frustrated by that. It could be annoying. It could be, you know, where it wasn't anybody listening. But listening to Judith, I think it's it shows the other way of looking at it and just say, you know, it's isn't it wonderful that, you know, many more people are discovering these possibilities, are listening, that we are presented with so many new possibilities for dialogue and discussion and teaching and learning. You know, this is a moment that we can take advantage of. So, you know, of course, there are days where, where it's frustrating and um, you see people reinventing the wheel, but it's kind of Judith's energy and attitude about it that um, I try and hold on to. Yeah, I think it's interesting. We are recording this in December of 2020 and, and we're going to be um, releasing this early next year, but it's still going to be relevant because I think how we rethink on our um, return to whatever, I don't say it's normal because nothing was normal. We need to think about this opportunity to redefine how this pedagogical practice and openness is going to be infused in some of our teaching and learning. And it will only help uh, what we add to online learning. I, I think it's um, it's not a this or that or binary. And I like that we can live in some of these gray zones. And reading this chapter, I thought about this because 2004, um, I know that Wiley and others were talking about remixing, reusing, but it's not just that. It's it is about a culture and a philosophy that undergirds open in general. And how can we let others know um, what that means to um, practice openness and how it could add to what we know and what we're learning now from the pandemic and that maybe we shift in our teaching and learning practice and how we research and share. Um, what, are, what are some hopes that maybe either one of you have 
Um, I don't know if you're thinking about this, but as we move into 2021, and this is when this episode will come out, what are you thinking about for that time period as we move forward? Uh, let me bring my reflection way back in 2008. Of oh, 2004, Please. I was, <laughs> I think I was uh, doing my undergraduate, so I didn't know uh, more about OER, and I think the idea was still relatively new. Mm-hmm. And even in 2008, um, uh, from my uh, my personal experience, when I got to learn to know about OER, it's when I was moving around and looking all through the internet to see to it that how can education be taken to the village rural girls, a place where I hailed from, where there's really challenges to even acquire education and quality education for that matter. And so I was thinking, now, how, how, how can the most academically capable girls in a rural setup achieve an education? Where they are, they don't need to come to the, I mean, the structures, which are so expensive. So read about OER in 2008. And I related this very well with uh, when I wrote my MA thesis on uh, um, use of technology as a strategy by financial institutions in Kenya. So that alone drove me towards reading more about technology and the OER. So, and then I came across the UNESCO's definition on what OER is. I'm like, hey, something is happening. So I need to do something. So. Uh, if I reflect back and I flash back and see where I was and where I am headed to in 2021, I think I'm a transformed person who is also out uh, ready to transform others. In what ways? One, digital education is very, very vital in our midst today. Two, in the African setup, we just need to embrace, integrate, and then share all that we do out there, as well as we also read and receive from others, let us also share our contents. And with the digital world, where we are able to access, we are able to reuse, we are willing and at all the time can repurpose, let us also learn from others and share out our contents, the true contents. I mean, the true content and we share them genuinely out there for others to alter, to solve their problems. In this manner, then I believe that the potential of OER will be utilized accordingly. Then the dream of those who came up with the idea, like when I was reading our chapter of OER, the 25 25 years of EdTech, I was like, I saw the development, the history on how Martin Weller has put them down. I'm like, this is something that if others who have not written their researchers can go through today, then they can come up with powerful papers on OER. And I will advocate for this. I'm going to lure some people to start rethinking on after 25 years of editing, what is going to happen. So this will really be very beneficial. So I say 2021 going to be a powerful year of use of education technology because we are never going to be the same again with the challenges of the, of the pandemic, there are so much opportunities that people have built up. We either go blended, especially in Kenya, it is going to be blended or and there's nothing like face-to-face full-time. No, we are going to have blended and where they're not blended, fully online teaching and learning. And that is very practical for me in the 2021. And I'm ready for the challenge. And I'm also trying to lure my colleagues to buy the idea of equal sharing of quality content that they teach and learn for others to use. Wow. 
<laughs> That's powerful, Judith. Um, with respect to 2021, Laura, um, I suppose whatever each of us may have known about inequalities um, in education and society globally, whatever we may have known in March, we can certainly say that we know more now um, based on based on all that has happened this year. So I just believe that in 2021, in our respective contexts as educators, although we're dealing with certainly many more challenges, um, there's an opportunity um, to apply you know, this, this body of work, um, not just in online education, but in open education. And in open education, the focus is on access and on equity. So, you know, we can make a personal commitment in our own teaching and our, in our own work to, you know, to enact those practices, to ask questions, perhaps to ask difficult questions. Um, and, you know, as I was saying in a webinar at, at OE Global a couple of weeks ago, you know, just to be bold and to embolden others. I mean, I think that is part of what open is about, um, because it's not the normal culture um, in higher education. So I would ask, you know, just invite people to step out of perhaps their comfort zone and, um, as I said, you know, be bold and, you know, you're standing on the shoulders of, you know, many amazing scholars, you know, all over the globe, scholars, educators, practitioners, community activists. Um, so there's much to build on, you know, we don't have to recreate this, um, but this is the time um, that such bold action is called for. I think you're both right. I think it it doesn't do us well to sit down and not say anything and it doesn't, um, do us well to not empower those around us um, and asking questions. I think that's how I want to end it is, uh, are there questions you want to ask either Martin or the OER community or anyone listening? Uh, what are the questions we should be asking around this topic of openness or how we move forward? Uh, well, uh, uh, the first question that I really want to ask Martin <laughs> and the OER community in general is uh, now, um, there's this transforming the concept of transforming the conventional wisdom that content is king. And if given the permission to alter and use, then we are headed the right direction. How can I convince my colleagues in the African continent that we can easily give our content out there and then they allow, we allow anybody anywhere across the globe to alter and reuse this content to transform a life, to transform a situation, to transform a, you know, a learning content. So this is really a question that is eating my head. How did MIT succeed in this? What can we borrow from MIT and, the, and, and other practitioners? Then how, how can we as a continent, we within the, in the global south, also borrow and embrace this the same way we embrace what we love, like going to church, going to the mosque, and going to the temple. That is my very tough question that I normally ask myself. Mm, I'm going to have to bring Martin back on to ask him that. So that's a good question. I've made note of that. Uh, Catherine, what are you thinking about? What question do you want us to think on as a community or for Martin? Um, I just have one question when you asked it. I just, my question that popped into my mind is what, what will you do now? You know, we're living, we're living in a, a different moment. Uh, we understand how the open education field and movement has evolved, you know, over the last number of years. Um, but really, 
you know, in my own research, I found that, you know, enacting openness, engaging in open educational practices, you know, as I say, is always complex, personal, contextual, and continually negotiated. So it starts with, you know, the individual. So my question is, you know, for Martin, and I suppose for everyone is, is what will you do now? Well, I'm going to leave those two great questions and not ask you either one uh, questions again, because I really appreciate the time you've taken to share and um, share about your experiences and reflections on OER and openness. So thank you both for joining me today. I really enjoyed that. Thank you so much. This was a beautiful opportunity, Laura. Thank you very much. And now for part two of the conversation, I'm joined by Virginia Rodes and Marin Deepwell. Thank you for joining me, ladies, for a conversation about OER. Hi there. Thank you, Laura. <laughs> well, Thank you for, for inviting us, it's, it's really wonderful. I'm excited. I've get to, I've got to have a couple of conversations. This is my second, and I've chosen to have two because uh, we couldn't fit us all in the first episode, and that's okay. We have a lot to say. OER is a big topic, so we're gonna dig into some of um, common themes and questions. But let's talk a bit about our experiences with open educational resources. I don't know, Virginia. Do you want to share? Um, what OER kind of means in your world and how you work in OER? Oh, yes. Uh, well, um, I, I, my experience is, uh, is start in, in OER starts, I think, in uh, 2005 when UNESCO organized the, the first workshop in OER in Uruguay in conjunction with my university, University of the Republic. And when I started to coordinate the, the, the um, virtual learning environment program at my university in 2008, um, that is a very huge uh, academic and training educational technologies program and also for the development of open digital ecosystems. Um, we started to, 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 to uh, introduce um, an open education uh, approach to this ecosystem, uh, integrating virtual learning environments and open multimedia platforms and other. And it was particularly, particularly focused on improving access to education. Uh, and we, in, in that days, we postulated the need for the existence of our four components for a sustainable model of open education in higher education. And, was focused in four in, in these four components uh, the use of open educational resources, the development of open educational practices, its availability from the use of free software and the publication under free and open licenses. This was in 2013 and this was uh, this approach was very prominent in the first studies uh, that were carried you know, the adoption of open education in the global south. Uh, we worked very hard to promote it in the country and seeking to, to influence other institutions and organizations. Uh, I think the, the, the two, two, uh, two projects were very influential in my practices and also uh, with my partners. That was the 12 projects, uh, uh, the Latin American Open Textbook Initiative, the Latin project, and the SPL inclusive virtual higher education in Latin America that was from 2012 and 2015. And both projects allowed us uh, on the one hand to develop an understanding of the integration of open education with accessibility uh, that led to the creation in 2015, the, the Open and Accessible Educational Resources Interdisciplinary Center, the NUCLOREA, 
as we coordinate uh, with uh, Dr. Shina Motz, uh, as well to establish and deepen regional collaboration ties uh, and promoted open education in Latin America, along with the consolidation of the Latin American Community of Learning Technologies, that it was former Latin American Community of Learning Objects. Um, in both contexts, uh, we developed innumerable open and accessible educational projects and initiatives. Uh, within the framework of this community, I worked in my doctoral thesis, where I belonged also with uh, uh, to Gaussian, uh, Network. Something that's curious to me, though, um, just knowing that this chapter is housed in 2004, it's funny, you said Uruguay in 2008 kind of uh, spun up more of the OER at the time and then got stronger between 2012 and 2015. I would agree. Like, I actually didn't see a lot of this appear till, yeah, 2010 is when I entered um, my PhD program. 2004, I admitted before that I was a, a student in my master's at the time. And as a learner, I never even heard about it. I don't know. Marin, what were you doing in 2004? Did you hear about OER at all then? <laughs> I was yes, also uh, a student <laughs> then um, in 2004. And um, I was doing my PhD at the time at a London universities in anthropology so um, I studied cemeteries for my PhD and OERs did not come up really. And that's kind of a flaw. It's interesting that we never even talk about is where does the learner get introduced to OER? And, and maybe it wasn't present early in the early or mid aughts in 2004, but it's amazing to hear that, Virginia, you were part of the global GN as well. And Judith um, has talked about an earlier part of this episode is um, also connected. Like this is where I think having a network of OER graduate students is really critical because how would it spread um, in two different countries and around different programs and academic kind of disciplines without having it. So um, is that kind of really what's helped the global South um, grow with the OER Virginia? Yes, it's, I think uh, it's, it's, uh, I, I was thinking about uh, the, the chapter. I think this is uh, one of the things uh, it lacks uh, a global vision. I, I think it's quite uh, rare because uh, Martin worked a lot on the, uh, making visible the the OER in other in in in, in less visible uh, areas in the in, in the in, in the world. I think it's very important to 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 think about the, the way uh, uh, the way OER is uh, is present in other areas. Um, uh, in in my in my thesis, I worked on it because. I worked with uh, three Latin American countries, three public, big, huge public universities, and uh, and I I, I realized that uh, it's very different the the way the uh, we think about OER, and, and mostly it's because the context is different, and it's not uh, less good. <laughs> this is one of the, of the things I, I have to say. Uh, I found that uh, uh, that. Uh, we have to uh, work on uh, some some kind of uh, decolonizing program about the OER. So uh, we we can talk about it later. Uh, I think it's uh, OER has a quite a post-colonial per perspective of the universi universality of OER, and uh, we have to face the challenge of critical appropriation in diverse contexts. So I think one of the of the of the uh, things we have to face uh, as a as a community to to talk uh, about the, the problems we have uh, 
because uh, if, if you can see uh, uh, in, in 2004, when you ask, uh, Mar asked Marion about uh, their, her experience, uh, uh, we, we were talking about learning objects in, in, in 2004 in, in, in Latin America, and we all we we developed the the, the open learning community of our learning object uh, LACLO community that is very very important in, in our region. But we were to, we were working on, on, on learning objects, and uh, um, at that time uh, I, I was uh, working with uh, Dr. Regina Motz uh, from the learning objects approach, especially starting a a research launching recommenders uh, and uh, licensing issues were still far from our concept because we were building the first steps in the country in the area of educational technology. But since that day, we, we started uh, to develop a, a strong uh, a practice on, on, on uh, oh yeah, also open source movement, the open source movement and uh, we managed with the project I, I mentioned uh, before. We managed to uh, to develop a very important community uh, and join efforts in the in the region between uh, many many partners, and and that conducted with the, uh, to 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 drive the, the the advance of OER and open education in the region with a very different perspective. Uh, that is. Uh, I think uh, uh, one of the problems uh, I don't know is, is this now the the, the 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 moment to talk about that. But I I, uh, I saw in in the in the chapter that uh, uh, Martin makes a concept about uh, content uh, in the focus on content uh, on 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 the OER uh, uh, OER um, uh, concept and. I think it's not uh, it's, it's, that's, that that tension between content and practice uh, is uh, quite uh, important in in education. But it uh, uh, had the that this is a continuum. Content and practice is the is it's a continuum uh, between the curriculum. Uh, thinking about the curriculum as a as content practices process and a didactic. In, in, situated in a, in a didactic context and also a national context and also an institutional context. And these are the some of the problems we, we have at face because uh, those contexts are not the same. <laughs> and also content is uh, very important as a structural part of the curriculum. Uh, it's not a quite... It's not possible to uh, to use any content because content is very uh, connected with e individuals, with uh, the identity of the individuals that use this context, and, and also with the uh, curriculum and the institution and the national context and, and the cultural context. Uh, so the this is a, a, a conceptual uh, topic that we have to 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 discuss more uh, because it's not. Tangential is very very important. It's a structural. Uh, if you think about the the textbook, uh, the textbook is the 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 way we uh, we express the uh, the 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 expressed curriculum. The, the curriculum that is a uh, uh, is quite a political view about the contents we have to 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 talk about in a practice in education, but. If you think as, as in curriculum as an ideological and political practice, uh, 
you can see that uh, the textbook is the uh, is the approved curriculum, but there are a lot of uh, things about uh, uh, what we can use. Uh, uh, perhaps uh, not all the the teachers can can use uh, can can uh, choose any content because they had to use that uh, a, a book that is approved by the by the government, for example. So right. choosing content is not a, a, a kind of a choice that all teachers can do. They have to uh, have some um, uh, agency over the curriculum development. So if we can think about these uh, these issues, the context, the the, the identity, the teacher professional identity, the kind of uh, things they can do uh, with curriculum, the level in which they work is different in higher education and it's different in in uh, in, uh, in in primary primary and secondary levels. And also, uh, when you think about the context, uh, it's different when you think in, in a university that is uh, in the north that is uh, quite elitist or is uh, based on the pr prestige of this university and the mission that the uh, higher education institutions have in, in the south that is more focused on the development of the country. And for example, it's, uh, my, my university is free, open to everybody. We are doing open education since 200 years. So uh, I think uh, it's, uh, we have to, to make some uh, program on uh, uh, decolonizing and thinking about uh, in a different way to, uh, about OER because in, in many areas of the, of the globe, uh, in the global south, we are doing different things about open education. We have a very different uh, uh, way in which we think about content, in, in which we think about education, access to education, it's a political and ideological way uh, in which we have to uh, uh, think about content, about access to education. So I was just wondering, based on what you've shared, can you tell me a bit about the countries that you studied? Because I was interested, because you have Uruguay as one. Um, if you could share a little bit more around the other countries, because I think you said it right, the tensions between um, that continuum, it's fluid between practice, content, but it's also related to structures and political. So what were the other two countries you were looking at when you found some of this to be true? With uh, Venezuela and Costa Rica. Costa Rica, okay. the, uh, universidad, uh, the university, the um, distance university in, in, in Costa Rica Perfect. and the Universidad Central de Venezuela and, uh, and Universidad de la República. This is mine in Uruguay. Great. I worked and with uh, with 12, 12 uh, it was a grand theory approach and I worked with uh, uh, 12 subjects uh, from the, that universities, those universities. Great. And I know, Marion, you probably have some thoughts, so I'm going to let you just jump in. So please. Yeah, it's been so interesting listening to Virginia and also... Um, you know, one of the ways in which I'm involved in OER is um, I'm part of the organizing team for the OER conference, which is annually in April, and it's now in its 12th year. Um, and I guess, um, you know, one of the things that really inspires me about OER and what I really reflected on reading this chapter was how much global impact in, you know, very different contexts OER has, um, you know, depending on the the context, um, some countries and some institutions obviously have much more resource um, and both in terms of um, you know, financial resources and capability, but also um, 
you know, skills to, to put into um, creating, promoting, adapting, reusing OER um, and, and charting its impact. Um, here in the UK, where I'm based and where my work is, um, we don't have a very consistent OER policy, despite the fact that we, you know, we're relatively resource rich. Um, we, we don't really have a, um, a national approach at this point, and we haven't had for a number of years. And it's something that we're really trying to champion and to address um, is to, to look at particular ways of influencing our government and our policymakers into adopting a more um, national approach to creating OER. And um, one of the things we did um, a few years back is to issue a call for action for policymakers um, around open education and OER. This year, um, and that's one of the things I'm curious um, to mention as well, um, we've been championing the Open COVID Pledge for Education which the association that I run, the Association for Learning Technology, helped launch and is championing. And I feel this is a really good example of the power and the impact of open educational resources, particularly in times of crisis, where we've seen educators all across the globe um, share content and make resources available um, for others to adapt and support learners and staff throughout this difficult period. So that is, I think, one of the very contemporary ways in which we can see the success of OER continuing, if in an unexpected way. Yeah, this, um, we'll put a link to the repository that the Alts group has, but like hearing you both talk about it, it's funny, there are tensions between the things, and this happens in education technology and learning and teaching all the time, the, the content, the materials, a textbook, what's and where it's happening, and then the practice. Because um, OER is also kind of listening to you both talk about it. It's, it's a mindset shift around how you actually think about pedagogy, what policies are in place, what support or infrastructures are at your campuses, institutions, your countries, your regions. And sometimes that's not decided for you. And I, I listening to you both talk, it's it's not a this or that or good or bad. It's a, I love that you said continuum, Virginia. And it's almost like it's sometimes stretches people more than they want to, like a rubber band. And sometimes the tension is too much. Um, so I wonder about that and thinking about the concepts and ideas from this chapter. Was there anything that stood out or that we think we should add in that maybe um, we should talk a bit more about OER that doesn't get typically brought up because we talk about reuse, accessibility, licensing, but like there are some yeah. things in the chapter that are missing, I think. Yes, uh, I think it was very interesting the historical perspective of the narrative uh, which connects uh, OER with uh, what was already before and the learning objects and it, it's part with explicit and various definitions. Uh, also the, the underlying critical perspective. Um, um, like, uh, likewise, I, I think it's very interesting the relevance of the creation of open licenses at the same time, uh, which were the key aspect that prevailed even in the definition of OER itself. Uh, I would add uh, also the, the, the emergence of the social web uh, with the participation of users as a key point in the generation of content that is very important for OER. Um, I also like uh, the perspective on the adoption analysis, uh, characterizing OER as a success. <laughs> it's what it was very interesting, but also at the same time, they're difficult to become uh, mainstream. What 
I think it, it lacks is a situated perspective or and a look at the global scene. Uh, I believe that the narrative is in the chapter located in the Anglo-Saxon North, and that is not by chance, uh, since it is the scenario in which uh, success narratives are always located, making other approaches uh, and other success in the other areas of the world invisible. Um, I believe that the chapter will be reached with a more comprehensive perspective or that uh, it mentions these problems with greater emphasis. The other aspect that was uh, key for me uh, is to include the critical perspective, uh, the practical content tension, the practice and uh, content tensions. Uh, on, on the one hand, it is significant for me to think about the relevance of content as a structuring factor, as I was saying, uh, a structuring factor of the curriculum and the role of the textbook in this scenario, thinking the curriculum not only as, uh, as content, but as practices and processes located in a didactical organization and geopolitical context. Uh, in the sense, content uh, as a structuring agent is not longer marginal and is what uh, could be the key to the difficulties for the generalization of OER that is thinking that they are only contents that can be transferred and adapted. On the other hand, uh, the question of the professional teaching identity, the relevance it has in the capacity given by the institution, as well as the possibility of deploying the agency itself to exercise the functions that the licenses allow. Is, uh, this is not minor and has not been sufficiently uh, studied. Uh, in addition, the key role that identity plays in ownership over the creation of the educational resource itself. That is uh, content as an extension of the identity, which is also an obstacle to adoption processes in, in such uh, functions as remixing or reusing. I think uh, we have placed so much emphasis on the issue of reuse also, uh, that we have lost sight of the processes of creating resources, uh, how they occur in really occur in educational institutions when they are enabled, the pre-existing collaboration and sharing process, the human scale of the sharing that is far from global repositories, but what happens is really happening in, 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 in schools and in universities. I challenge the community to give visibility on focus to work towards these human scale scenarios. Uh, on the other hand, I, uh, uh, to think about the situated perspective, the key dimension of the nature of the institutions and different forms and meanings that the education institution and in particular the university has in different countries. Um, access to education does not have the same meaning in the north in, as in the south. However, the open education movement and in particular OER is heavily transversed by educational elitism, neoliberal reforms typical of the North, especially in the UK and the USA. This is, does not allow us to visualize other scenarios where the institution have another social mission, another non-elitist conception, a different structure. Uh, finally, the, the need to carry out serious work of decolonizing uh, OER, because in addition to what I mentioned above, there is underlying OER, on the one hand, the emergence as a superficial solution to the problem of neoliberal transformation of education. And on the other, and very importantly, uh, the underlying issue that the relevant content is from the North and that it benefits the countries of the Global South by sharing it. This is a very, very strong focus on 
sharing content. Uh, I think both actions bring as consequence a phenomenon of commodi commodification and monetization, such as the case of MOOCs, uh, which put at risk uh, the very existence of Southern universities and the influence as development factor in non-central countries. I believe that this uh, debate should take place as soon as possible, uh, as it's a key point that has been accelerated in the framework of COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, you're drawing on things, Virginia, that I talked with the panel of uh, women back at the LMS chapter, essentially, um, you can't not say these changes and these influences of OER and other things. So we were talking in this sense, we were talking a little bit around, you mentioned identity, which I think is so wrapped up in open educational practices and then content with OER is key. We talked about the LMS and saying that the place where it goes um, is really influenced and we can't recognize like these neoliberal transformations of our institutions. Um, we don't do two things, which I thought you brought up really well is the visibility of this work and what it takes to actually do that. And then what it means for the professionals who are doing this work. So thank you for sharing that. Marin, what are you thinking about in terms of this chapter? Um, some ways you'd like to augment it or highlight some things that are, that maybe we should call out to recognize some success. Well, um, I, I think my thoughts are quite similar as um, Virginia's. And one of the things I've been involved with in the last couple of years is the Fem EdTech Network. And um, we've talked a lot about, you know, um, open educational practices as, as OERs and how, you know, how feminist practices could be OERs and, and what that, what implications that has on for sort of un, undervalued or invisible labor um, and and what impact that has, um, you know, in, in a whole number of ways in which we recognize there are inequalities, whether we're looking at, you know, global north, west, global south, or whether we're looking at, you know, things through a gender lens or maybe, um, you know, whether we, we're looking at other types of inequalities. That's one really key point. And I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure what the answers are. Um, there, um, I think part of it is, you know, part of what I'm interested in is kind of recognizing and and trying to articulate and situating your professional practice in a way that acknowledges this this kind of context, but also gives you a way to kind of move and be productive, you know, in that context. Um, but I think also there is um, there is kind of a question around professional value and value of creating OER as professional practice. And that's where kind of the day job I have, you know, running a professional body is really important because many, um, many institutions and many frameworks of professional accreditation don't really recognize sharing your practice openly as a specific, you know, achievement or a specific skill. Um, it's not really specifically valued as part of professional practice it's sort of like a nice to have maybe an add-on um, and that's something which we come across again and again in the um, OER conference as well and the research and practice that's being shared there is that you know we really need to educate um, institutions and you know and in, in kind of those people um, who write these types of frameworks who, who think about progression and um, and career development in how the importance of OER could be reflected in those types of frameworks and in those kinds of conversations. Um, 
And I, I guess for me, there's also a question of whether, you know, how far we've moved on from this chapter in terms of like, you know, the perspective is, is focused um, sort of, you know, it's situated in 2004 and it mentions things that have happened since then. But I wonder whether sometimes we are kind of stuck in the cycle of um, there's always people who haven't heard of it, who need to adopt it. There's always people who are ahead of the curve. And I kind of wonder whether the pandemic um, in 2020 has given us an opportunity to try and finally move to the next step in the kind of adoption and and kind of more uh, make have a more mature, more informed approach to um, scaling up use of OER globally, um, taking into account the important issues that Virginia has just mentioned. Yeah, I really think the end of this chapter touched on like where things are going, like it, forget the projects, forget the funding towards moving towards open textbooks and things. I'd like to see OEP, the OE, open educational practices. And people may not even realize that they are doing these sort of pedagogical practices and they're teaching, learning or research. Um, I'm not affiliated with any institution of education at all, but I still see myself as an open practitioner because we want to be sharing um, voices, places, people, um, have a diverse representation. And I think we are calling it out more in our scholarly work, in our teaching and learning. Um, and it's making people have a space and place where they feel like the playing field is level. And that's one thing I think OER may have built the foundations for, but we're not there yet. And, and whether it's around uh, where you're geographically located to um, what you represent on the gender continuum, I think we've not reached entirely because we're still figuring out. And it's hard to be in this murky mess and recognize that I love that you said, Myron, that I don't have all the answers. We None of us have all the answers. And it's it's okay to flail in this a bit. And we don't let ourselves do that often, or at least my experience in academia, you really want to talk, rarely want to talk about failure and say, oh, we messed up, or we don't want to call out these things because um, we never have. And so I, I think it's, these questions are really kind of what's bubbling to my mind of, I really want to ask the community. I don't know what you all are thinking for questions for Martin or the community is, like, where are you thinking about yourself in the openness way? Or how are you thinking about open in the work you do? And it doesn't have to be about a thing you create, but what does open look like for you in your teaching, learning, and research practices? Kind of my big question for the community. Um, is there are, are there other questions we should ask our, our community of uh, educators and teachers and researchers out there? Um, well, I think from a personal perspective and relating that back to my own practice, like I'm um, an open practitioner in a leadership position. And um, I think, you know, on, on a personal level, I think I'm looking to challenge more people in leadership positions to adopt open um, practices. Um, while, you know, only some of my work is related to kind of academic practice or research, I think the same principles of open educational practice can be very well applied to leadership and management. Um, I've been blogging about that as well and um, finding people, it really resonates with them in terms of like accountability, authenticity, but also coming back to reflecting on, you know, one's context and and the uh, um the different blind spots you might have um, and how to, you know, how to contend with that in an authentic way. So I think from a personal point of view, that would be one next step for me. How we can think about open education in 
from this from migration from Latin America. But also, I think this was very, very, very important uh, to to be connected with the the Gaudian network, the Global Year Graduate Network, and also with Art. See that is uh, here is mine, and it's very interesting the way we can uh, the, the, those those network work in connecting voices in putting uh, people together to to think about the the, the same the same issue uh, to to make everybody uh, at the same level when when talking when when uh, presenting when uh, giving conferences when thinking about uh, um, this 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 global issue that is open education but in a in a in a way that is very uh, with very respect uh, with a lot of respect about by uh, from for people i think it, uh, those network uh, go to and, uh, and add, uh, give uh, uh, the the scenario to talk uh, with the, in different voices where are abroad. Uh, it was very important for my for my uh, for for giving uh, my work a global perspective and thinking and 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 also uh, this kind of uh, theoretical thinking with with people that is uh, working in the same thing that I am working on. That is not uh, quite uh, easy in, in my version. Yeah, I think some of the work that I like that you bring up the Gojian and the Alt C. Um, I wonder about the outreaching to people who have never heard anything about this, and and maybe really just recognize the need for some of this sharing of educational practice. Um, that's that's something what I'm thinking about. Like I I don't work in a university anymore, uh, but I do think about. Um, the way that we share our practice and knowledge and how we do things is more than critical. Are there ways that, whether it's the Go GN, because um, I know you're an alumni of Virginia, or alts are thinking about, um, I love that there's this COVID response and repository. Are there other ways that you're thinking of ways to invite people in to these areas or to not only educate, but make them feel like they can be um, sharing a bit more and be part of this openness? Marin, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So um, ALT has an open education special interest group whose mission is really to spread the word around OER, um, which is um, open to everyone. Um, everybody is welcome. And they do an amazing number of online events and activities um, throughout the year. Um, also, there is um, a whole lot of activity going on um, for us outside of higher education. So one of the things we are involved in is for work-based um, and vocational education um, is a, a new um, national network to promote particularly um, open practice and particularly resources. And I think there's also great initiatives um, that, you know, bigger organizations like Mozilla or Creative Commons are undertaking that we're kind of amplifying and supporting um, signposting to folk um, to try and spread the word. Um, one thing that I'm very aware of is that in some of the, the open courses for teachers um, that have come out this year, there's a new one just now launching on FutureLearn um, called Designing for Open and um, for Online and Blended Learning. That has a, um, you know, specific chapters on kind of, you know, using open resources and how to, um, like, you know, introducing teachers to that concept. So I think it is trickling down um, if, you know, if slowly. 
it happens. Change, change happens slowly. So uh, is there ways that people can connect Virginia that you recommend um, for the GoGN or that you're, you want to mention for listeners who may have no idea what it is? Oh, the Global OER Graduate Network is a very uh, heartly <laughs> community uh, because uh, it's a kind of friendship and, and, and protect uh, the, the, the members and uh, giving ways to, to talk uh, with the, uh, different people from different parts of the world and putting together uh, and, and valuing they, they work, that they work. Uh, it's, it's very interesting. I think uh, uh, everybody that is working in, 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 in uh, open education has to pay attention of the, on, on this network. And uh, when you find somebody that is uh, doing the, her or his uh, PhD uh, thesis on these issues, uh, it's very important to, to put uh, him or her in contact uh, with the GoGN because it's a, a driver to uh, making a better PhD thesis, but not only this, it's, uh, it's a way to be connected with uh, the global voices and and to 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 be uh, um, it's, it's also a, a a way to 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 make friends in in in, in also a, a place where you can think uh, uh, in a more uh, comprehensive comprehensive way in about uh, open education. Um, in 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 Latin America, I think it's very important uh, to be connected with the. Uh, community of uh, uh, learning technologies that we we make a conference uh, each year. Uh, it, it's focused on uh, uh, all, it has a, a very special focus on open education and open educational resources, but also in other uh, learning technologies. Uh, but uh, I think it's a, 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 a very interesting uh, community to be to be part. And to be uh, present, and not only for uh, Latin American friends, but also in, in a global way. No? I, I think it's very important to to have um, not only the the fluency, the the, the uh, participants from the South to the North conference, but also from the North to the South conference. I, I think it's it's a thing that we still have to 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 work uh, harder. Um, so, giving a, a mix uh, and 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 giving relevance to what is happening in other regions in in relation to conferences. Um, I think uh, uh, it's very important. Also, the uh, Marin. Uh, I I don't know. I, I don't remember if Marin uh, mentioned it. That is the the OER conference that is uh, organized by RT. It was very important for me for my my. Uh, um, for my comprehension of about uh, uh, the 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 year problem and open education, and it was also a scenario where to share my 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 research and my practice, and uh, I think it's very interesting. And also the uh, the work that is uh, doing uh, the open education board in, of the Open Knowledge uh, International that is coordinated by Javier Atenas and. Uh, there is a lot of uh, of uh, uh, um, things going on and networks that are being created. Uh, this this year, I also participated in the OER Global Coalition uh, that is uh, uh, conducted by UNESCO, 
uh, where I, we were working on a roadmap to 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 uh, develop the OER recommendations uh, in the different countries, and um, it's work. It was a very uh, a very interesting work being done in all, all <laughs> in a virtual manner because we didn't uh, have able to. Uh, we haven't been able to 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 be present uh, in in Paris in the in the launch of the of the OER coalition, uh, but uh, I think it's uh, there are some uh, uh, steps to 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 introduce uh, in a more uh, um, institutional way uh, these recommendations and how to uh, to to put uh, these those recommendations in the, uh, in the policies of the countries because the ministries of the of the of the different countries uh, participated in the in the uh, approval of the OER recommendation that is very very important uh, um, uh, milestone in 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 our movement so there is a very hard work to do in in in, in this uh, in this area the center where we we work in, in interdisciplinary and uh and in an interdisciplinary way, an intersectoral way, because we we work, we, we put together uh, not only academics but also the the social uh, sector and also the the, the govern, governmental sector in 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 in, in terms of uh, uh, keeping the conversation uh, going on uh, and putting open education in 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 the in a in a relevant uh, um, in a rele- relevant position. I, I just want to say thank you both Marin and Virginia for sharing your time um, to talk about. There's so many things about open we could talk about, but I want to be uh, cognizant of your time and say thank you so much for joining uh, this episode of the podcast. Really, we could have its own podcast. It sounds like really, um, but I'm going to thank you for now and try to get all these amazing ideas, questions, resources for our listeners. Um, So thank you so much for sharing a bit of your time to have a conversation. Thank you, Laura. Always a pleasure and wonderful to see you, Virginia. Thank you. Thank you for both. Uh, Thank you, Laura, for this initiative. And and I'm very happy to be part of this and and to thank uh, Martin for this initiative to to make the the book of uh, 25 years of tech. You've been listening to Between the Chapters with your host, Laura Pisquini. For more information or to subscribe to Between the Chapters and 25 Years of EdTech, visit 25years.opened.ca.